0: You are now listening to episode 60 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today we're discussing an awesome book, An Epidemic of Absence, A New Way of Understanding Allergies and Autoimmune Diseases, with the author Moises Velasquez-Manoff. I think in this interview I said the word fascinating about 28 times uh so it's a subject i find you guessed it fascinating i have so much i want to say about this episode and my performance in this episode and what i wanted to get out of it and what i accomplished and um questions i have and but i'm just gonna let it all go let's It's just listen to this one um I mean, I really wanted to tear apart and edit it, and I didn't feel real good after the interview. I I thought I had really failed, but uh, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm not going to edit it at all. Thanks for listening. hello hi Moises
1: yeah hi Rand. how
0: are you hey good and you
1: very well thanks I
0: well, thank, oh man thank you so much for uh <clears throat> agreeing to this interview it's fantastic of course I had so many people write to me and tell me I needed to check out your book that oh really <laughs> yeah I just I had to go get it <laughs> and well, that's then, good uh, to hear yeah, and uh, people pointed me to Chris Cresser's podcast, so I listened to you on there, and uh, it was really great, really great.
1: Yeah, that was fun. Excellent.
0: So here's what. Let me do a little setup here. So this is uh, Moises Velasquez Manoff, or do you say Velasquez?
1: Velasquez is fine. Velasquez
0: Manoff. We're talking about this book, "An Epidemic of Absence." A New Way of Understanding Allergies in Autoimmune Diseases. Fascinating topic here. What is um, what is this new way of understanding? What are we talking about?
1: Well, um, usually the typical way of thinking about autoimmune allergic diseases uh, is that there is something that has made you sick in the environment, be it some chemical exposure or... Even in the case of allergic disease like hay fever, the pollen itself is what's making you sick. Or if you have peanut allergies, the peanuts are making you sick because there's something um, about them. Um, this new way doesn't look at the substances themselves. And in the case of autoimmune disease, of course, it's not, uh, it's not the, the, the tissue that you're turning against that's making you sick. Like if you have type 1 d- diabetes, it's not your own pancreas that's making you sick because it's your pancreas It should not be making you sick um, uh, it's in this case in this new uh, way of looking at these diseases what's making you sick is that your body has lost its ability to hold back its own immune response because in a way it has weakened in some sense your immune system simply because you can look at it as it, it doesn't get the practice it needs it's not educated in the right way and um, and when you weaken the part of your body the part of your immune system that is responsible for restraining the aggressive part what happens you end up with an overly aggressive um, overly aggressive tendencies
0: mm-hmm. so the reaction is the the immune system actually overreacts that's right yeah and this this work uh, the the books just so fascinating I, I don't even know where to start and also were you ever going to stop writing, or were you just going to keep going?
1: <laughs> you mean with with the book? With the book. Yeah. <laughs> what made you finally stop? <laughs> well, uh, it's probably there's even more I could have added. It's yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I'm kidding. It's fantastic, but it, it's it's well, you know, you're not the first person who said, "Couldn't you have done a slimmer version?" And right. maybe I will one day uh, in a few years when when you know uh, the science has moved a little bit farther along, maybe, and uh, there are some concrete things we can say, but at this point, I th- I felt like it was important to lay out the strength of the evidence, you know, in its yeah, full sort of way. Yeah,
0: part of the problem is that we're, you're covering just about everything. I mean, from vaccinations to modern sanitation, evolution, and then all these critters, these what we're terming now old friends, right? Yeah. So... There is a lot to cover in the book. Let's um Can we go back to like the 1950s and talk a minute about um vaccinations and sure. the rise of autoimmunity?
1: Uh yeah, well, you know, vaccina- vaccines are fine, at least in the research that I did. Um it, because those the the bugs that we get vaccinated against are not the bugs that keep us healthy. Um most of the the diseases, the pandemic diseases, are actually recently acquired. They're, they only recently colonized the human body from animals, from from our our uh, you know our cows. Measles probably came from, uh, diverged from rinderpest, and you know several times it seems. At least when they do the molecular analysis, um, the smallpox seems to come from something that lived on on camels and of course camels were domesticated around 5,000 years ago camels or gerbils um, so these things do not make us healthy at all mm-hmm. and these are the things we tend to vaccinate against
0: okay so and these are the, also things then, then therefore we, we did not co-evolve with
1: that's right there's that's been exactly no right.
0: time, no sufficient time or pressure and many of these things just kill us so they we do. don't actually live and develop or change with them right
1: they have a sort of uh, use and abuse approach to, to uh, symbiosism. So mm-hmm. they just come, they, they tear apart your body, and they just want to multiply as quickly and as rapidly um, and as detrimentally to you as possible because they're just looking for the next host, the next place to grow.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They, you know, look at your body as a petri dish, essentially. Uh, they will use the petri edition to destroy it because they don't care if you continue or not because they'll just find someone else.
0: Yeah, this is all new to me. I didn't know. I, yeah, I, and I find this fascinating that it, it will just destroy the host. It has no no concern at all.
1: No, wh- and the ones that uh, that seem to be more healthy for us are the ones that have been with us since the times uh, when we were living in small groups and that approach to to. Uh, You can call it a kind of parasitism, but it's really kind of – it verges on mutualism in some relationships. Um, That approach doesn't work when you have small groups. Then you kill everyone in the group, uh, and then there's nowhere else to go, and so you've just driven yourself extinct. So if we want to talk about sort of the classic parasites, the worms, um, they are much more – they take a marathoner approach to parasitizing. They don't kill you. They take a little bit. And sometimes they don't seem to take anything at all. I mean there are many parasitologists who argue that a healthy person can host a number of parasites without really noticing and may actually uh, be the better for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they, in my experience, take a little from you. Uh, and uh, But they don't kill you outright. They maybe weaken your defenses so that when something comes along that does want to kill you, you're a little bit more susceptible to it. But that's debatable as well. Uh, and what they do is they just, uh, they, they treat you with a soft touch in quotes mm-hmm. and just, uh, have you shed eggs and then they, they hope that someone else will come and counter those eggs or larva depending on the species and then they'll find a new host. But if they were to kill you outright, they would drive themselves extinct.
0: Okay. Cause they actually need you to incubate, you know, to, this is like the movie Alien,
1: yeah. I mean, so think about it. There's, there's 50 people. That's the world of human hosts that mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. deal with. What you want to do is not start killing those 50 people because then you run out of, of, of hosts to live in. Right. And you're a parasite. You depend on another body to survive. You can't live by your, on your own in the dirt. Um, even though a lot of these parasites do have a free-living stage, but they can't li- stay there permanently – Uh, So what you do is you just, you treat your host with a little bit of, uh, you you know, not too um, cruelly. And that way you increase your chances of transmission because you increase the time span you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Uh, As opposed to a flu, which you basically, a flu virus, um, influenza, which comes, replicates like mad. And tries to find a new host before your adaptive immune system evicts it from your body, or it kills you. Um, and you, so you basically have like a two-week window before you you better you better transmit to someone else. Otherwise, you're you're finished. Hmm.
0: And so, back to this idea of the, the vaccination process for these pandemic diseases. It did occur at the same time autoimmune diseases were. Or thereafter, they rose. That is that is correct, right?
1: Well, um, there have been a sort of there's an outlay of vaccines. They don't all arrive at once. Yeah. Um, but uh, this was the first. The first vaccines mm. were actually you know the first vaccine was for um, for smallpox, and that was being used throughout the 19th century. It was kind of crude. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, it basically involved. Uh, Deliberate infection with a cowpox or something like that, you know, a related, a related uh, virus. And then you could, you would thereafter have immunity to the smallpox, which is much more lethal to humans. Mm -hmm. Um, But to answer your question, um, the vaccines uh, sort of are, you know, post-war is when they really start, but they're still, uh, you know, the measles vaccines are still take a while. Um, but vaccines really don't have much to do with autoimmunity. Um, okay. it's the others, it's really the sanitary improvements or, or antibiotics.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm bag. not, I'm not making a stating a position. I'm just referring to a chart and some things I read in the book. I'm not, I'm not anti-vax or trying to, to make that statement. I was just curious as to, it seems a few things happened at the same time See, as we became more modern. And, you know, I'm referring to that. I think the study was in 2002.
1: Yeah, the, but, the Jean-Francois Bach. Yeah, chart, Bach, yeah. Well, that, has, uh, that has tuberculosis, for which we don't really have a, a workable vaccine. The BCG doesn't really work that well, right? Mm. So that, that was a triumph of antibiotics and of sanitation that the tuberculosis rates started going down. Mm-hmm. And better nutrition.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have no innate ability to defend ourselves against these pandemic diseases, and then we have these other parasites and what's the term? Um, old friends. Now we found some ancient cultures, or what do we? What is the modern term now? Primitive. You know, a <laughs> Price called them primitives. Um, these cultures where people have. Um, pretty healthy and pretty heavy doses of infections with things like hookworms. And they don't suffer a lot of um, modern ailments like asthma.
1: That's right. And
0: modern – and any any current modern disease, right?
1: Uh, They don't. they're
0: very rare, I should say.
1: Extremely rare, uh, far, far below what you would expect. Um, But they do suffer from high mortality. Yeah, uh,
0: here's a there's a massive trade-off here. This isn't all pie in the sky. Get a little dirty, get a few worms, and live extremely healthy. I think you mentioned. I think it's like one in five children weren't living past the age of five.
1: Yeah, and that's these days. That's you know, in 2013.
0: Yeah, so that's a trade-off. No modern person's willing to make for longevity.
1: Yeah, but I think it's important to keep one thing in mind, and that is the following: that the scientists who study this don't necessarily think that the things that kill you are the things that we need. Um, so worms are an interesting case because they weakened you, mm-hmm. um, but but no one's necessarily. Well, let me. I mean, I'm going to say this and then contradict myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> no one's necessarily saying we all need to reintroduce massive doses of of worms. Now, let me contradict myself and say. Mm-hmm. That there are at the University of Nottingham in the UK, there are in fact looking into using the human hookworm, Nicator Americanus, therapeutically. And they've done a bunch of human trials. Uh, so far, they're not really conclusive. But uh, the idea being that, that uh, people in the wild seem to be able to tolerate a certain dem- number of hookworms as long as they're well nourished without really any major obvious symptoms. Mm-hmm. Now, what remains to be seen is whether you can take someone who never grew up with those hookworm infections and who has a demonstrably different immune function because of it already, and who possibly already has some kind of inflammatory disease, and just throw some hookworm in it, and, and then everything's going to be okay. That remains right. to be proven. Right. right. There's
0: uh, there's too many the the ecosystem of of a person living more naturally is so varied and wild. We could never. Uh, quantify it all
1: well there's that too but people are in fact rushing to quantify it because those you know lost in quote tribes mm-hmm. are, are not going to be lost much longer they're going to be you know they're going to be engaged in modernity very soon because right, it's just right. very difficult to be living like that forever
0: mm-hmm.
1: so they're, they're, they're rushing to quantify like what does the primeval human gut flora look like you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, people who have never really taken antibiotics—what mm-hmm. does it look like? How does it differ? And should we preserve it? Should we use it as a reference and and, and so on? That's actually happening.
0: Oh, that's great. That's really—I mean—that's really fascinating. I mean, if you're going to run a trial, we need that control. You know, we don't have uh, the untouched gut flora. <laughs> We've all been damaged.
1: We have, but you know what's interesting is they did a comparative study just on kids who live in a slum in Bangladesh. This is not in my book because it came out this year. Um, and they also had a very diverse gut flora, much more diverse than that normally seen in the West. So you don't necessarily have to go back to the Stone Age mm-hmm. to find what we're looking for. Just going back uh, pre-1950 or maybe you know the 19th century sort of – uh, circumstances, you find this diversity. And the idea, of course, is to foster that kind of diversity uh, without drinking sewer accidentally and everything else that comes along with drinking sewer, right? Well, all yeah. the other po- positive illnesses, the, the possible illnesses.
0: Yeah. So the question is, how dirty do we need to get?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, you know, ideally they just identify the keystone sort of species we need and it won't be a matter of of us wallowing in dirt all the time we'll just drink it'll come in a bottle i mean that's a very idealized view of something that is extremely complicated like Mm -hmm. you know anything that's in a bottle is almost by by definition simplified and essentialized Mm -hmm. but if it's if it's possible that there are really let's say there's just like a hundred key species we that humans need to be healthy Mm -hmm. um that's really easy to put in a bottle and
0: in theory at least Okay, so we could be talking about more of a, a fine maintenance program, but not necessarily uh, pure optimization, <laughs> if we could identify a few strains. What I'm thinking of in relation to is, say, a commercial yogurt. Yeah. As a, as a fermenter myself, I know that these commercial yogurts, I've tried them all, won't restart, or they'll only restart two, three generations, meaning I can't use them as starter culture. Yeah. They'll yeah. only go about two or three generations, and then they just they just, they just stop working, and they won't thicken milk anymore, and they don't actually produce yogurt. Whereas if I get some ancient strains um, online or from a local farm of – well, the one from the farm is of unknown origin. They don't even know. It's just been handed down. Yeah. It's, it's been going uh, for me forever, and sometimes I just forget about it and leave it in the fridge like way, 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 way too long pull it out use it again and it keeps on going you know yeah. so i could see a problem where if if we did identify the 100 essential you know things that would keep us alive we might be missing 50,000 <laughs> you know other agents of um that that could help improve us as well
1: yeah it's it's absolutely possible i mean i think the yoga the commercial yoga example is it's a good example of of why it's hard to deal with this in a sort of put it in a pill kind of way because mm-hmm. what they do essentially is they they sterilize they, they have their 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 strains that they use for actually making the yogurt then they pasteurize then they add in so-called probiotic strains yeah right and those probiotic strains are um, you know, I don't want to belittle the industry too much, but they're sort of arbitrary. Like, wh- why is it decided that this strain is good for me? And the science behind them is actually very limited. And as you well know, if you have a, a, you know an actual fermented dairy product, a kefir or what have you, mm-hmm. there are like th- they have thousands, tens of thousands of species yeah, yeah. in there. And on top of that, microbes naturally form communities. Right? They form like little civilizations where there's processing going on. And that totally just doesn't happen in the in the commercial the – commercial, you know, the available brands because they're basically going for the pillow process. They're saying, OK, in a mouse, we've shown that lactobacillus whatever does X. So we're going to throw that in there, right? But what if what you need is like the whole community of yeah. – the structure of the community – and it might may not even colonize you permanently, but by just throwing in a whole sort of uh, mini society of microbes, you get some sort of effect that you don't get by sho- throwing in one strain, mm-hmm. which I think is very plausible. It's just that no one has really studied it rigorously. They're starting to, but it's like, yeah, where, yeah. Is the, yeah. where is the um, the, incent- the profit incentive?
0: Yeah, these bacteria, they have a, an amazing communication system. I know i watched a, a TED Talk once by Bonnie Basler.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she talked about the communication of bacteria and how they can suddenly just, like, it's like a pulse, and they just all, it just, once they reach a threshold of population, say, then the whole community changes. Yeah. It's, it's completely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And I'm guessing that through this co-evolutionary process, you know, these these things... Man, it just seems so important to me that we really, really do need to get a, a really good understanding of this, moving, you know, to move forward in good health. Especially with the as the third world comes on board with cleanliness, sanitation, a change in nutrition, you know, as their world changes, how are we going to keep them healthy? Not that it's my, you know, not I hate this first worlder attitude. How am I going to keep them healthy? But as their world changes what are, what are the things that are going to how are we going to you know yeah keep that going
1: well that's a good question um and you know a lot of there's already a sense in the um in this in the literature on on allergic disease in particular that uh there is a forthcoming tsunami of allergic diseases in these in de- developing worlds, and it's already you can already see it in the cities where it's actually going to be higher than it, than it is in the developed worlds, um, and the reasons may be simply that the genetic proclivity to allergic disease, since allergies can be seen, and many argue are really um, really an anti-parasite mechanism. So you you're you're trying to expel. When you inhale, you know tree pollen, and you sneeze. That's really a mechanism that's evolved to expel parasites, and it's just a- accidentally turned against tree pollen. Um, so, in these, in the developing world where it's mostly uh, tropical environments, and those peoples have uh, evolved with more parasites. And the truth of the matter is, we were we, everyone is parasitized, all the way from the Arctic Circle to to the tropics, but. There are a greater variety, perhaps, of parasites in the tropics than there are at the Arctic Circle.
0: Um, that would make sense for obvious reasons. You know. There's just a greater variety of everything. Of everything, right.
1: Um, so you you possibly have stronger ingrained anti-parasite uh, machinery that then ends up getting turned onto innocuous proteins like food and... Uh, And and pollen and you already see that happening in India and some of the places, the cities in Latin America where asthma and allergies are very high, um, higher than in, in the developed world.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So this could also be a function of our this extreme population growth, right? This could it's like a double whammy, but times like to the tenth power because of
1: population you mean because so many people are going to be allergic
0: yeah and yeah and um, well i was kind of thinking more of an evolutionary process also and tied with in with like hunter gatherer small groups versus our extremely dense situ- you know close quarters with
1: massive
0: yeah, wh- population
1: Right, but the problem uh when allergies emerge, the problem is is that you're, you know, in a sense cleaning up. That's why they're emerging. You're no longer in contact with the old friends. Yeah, yeah. So, and you, you can do that uh, in sparsely populated groups like the suburbs, you can do that in densely populated groups like the inner city. Um, you know, it doesn't how you live doesn't matter in terms of population density. What what's more important is uh, what you are no longer in contact with, so like you know in the developing world in rural areas, over and over you find that these diseases hardly exist at all, but mortality is very high um for other reasons, not always sometimes though, like in those in that amerindian group I visited um, but you know fairly uh it 's fairly predictable that from rural areas of developing world, including in China. There are these amazing studies coming out from China uh, where you know people still tend to farm and live around a lot of animals in mm-hmm. rural areas. And it's like allergic diseases just doesn't exist compared to the cities.
0: It's very interesting. It seems that it's kind of a strange way to say it, but in these areas, in these rural areas that have a a higher death rate, especially, you know, infant mortality rate, it's kind of like its own filter where it's filtering out the weakest elements. And then we do see a healthier adult population. I'm not proposing eugenics. (laughs) I'm just just an observation.
1: Yeah, I'm not so sure that that's, that holds. I mean, it's it's sort of like the luck of the draws a lot okay. of times. Okay. You know, with, with who gets killed off mm-hmm. in an infectious disease environment. Okay. I mean, so the people who survive might be people who just were never exposed to whatever the bug is. Okay. Or people who who uh, had adequate vitamin C because they happened to, um, uh, you know, because they had ate a lot of food fruit that time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of other factors that are involved in who lives and who dies. Mm-hmm. in a highly infectious disease environment and one of them being parasites if you have a huge parasite load it's going to weaken your defenses <laughs> against things yeah, that like, actually do. It's clearly. like you need
0: just the right amount.
1: Yes, well, that's exactly
0: right. <laughs> it's a balancing act. And I think that's what uh, you were covering in the book there. They they you know they were trying 250 worms, 50 worms, 20, 25 and <laughs> you know making people sick and then or not making them sick enough or and then trying to find that balance. And didn't one of the scientists even regret that he didn't quite use enough worms?
1: Yeah. And uh, <laughs> when I spoke with him, it was a few years later, uh-huh. I think, but because they didn't really see much of an effect. So they chose the, the amount, the lowest amount, which but no one even noticed they, could, they carried. Okay. You know, so there was no side effects, but it didn't seem to have the oomph the, the to actually change immune function in a way. That 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 would help with the diseases they were looking at, which mm-hmm. were asthma and hay fever. Uh, so he did regret it, but on the other hand, um, I'm still not sure that that people who grow up in the developed world that when they're adults that you can just throw a bunch of, of hookworms in and then see and expect to see no symptoms. I think if you grow up with the infections, I mean, it's yeah. already demonstrated that, like, you know your Your gene expression is different if you grow up with a lot of parasite infections mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so you're you're already your baseline function is different it's like it's less prone to uh to over respond right so you're less so the pain and suffering that comes from uh you know a Brit infecting himself with fifty hookworms is partly a result of his own immune response to to the worms so if you don't yeah. if you don't uh you know, if you don't overreact, it won't hurt you as bad.
0: This really points to the importance of <laughs> getting infected early <laughs> and, and dealing with it early on. This could be an epigenetic effect or perhaps even your parents. Maybe yeah. would, would that have something to do with it as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, there are some studies in that I cited in Ghana where they dewormed mothers. This is in a nourished population, and of course, this is the outlier finding because you know the whole uh, NGO community is trying to not have mothers be pregnant and have worms because it because it leads to anemia and other problems possibly. But these women did not have anemia; they were well nourished. Um, they dewormed. They did a double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. They dewormed, and, and their kids who were dewormed. Um, they had a higher rate of eczema like two years later. Do you, the kids whose mothers were dewormed while they were pregnant. Huh. I mean, and as it happens, similar studies have been done in rodents, not with parasites but with bacteria, um, showing a transgenerational effect. In other words, what happens to mother while she's pregnant sort of trains the immune system of the developing fetus so that either later on, it's uh, in this case, it was a bacterium they had isolated from a barn <laughs> a barn in in Bavaria somewhere really um and <laughs> so they could the, the the mice came out and they grew up and they just didn't develop asthma they were totally protected from asthma and of mm-hmm. course that mimics the observation in humans which is mm-hmm. mothers who will work in barns while they're pregnant tend to have kids who don't develop asthma or allergies as frequently
0: yeah we're talking about a rural farm setting where things are done in um Ancient traditional manners. Um, this includes um, grain fermentation for animals. Yeah. Corn fermentation uh, silage, where this is a lactobacillus process, and that lactobacillus it, it goes it's everywhere. It's in the air. It's in the dust. It's on the particles. Right.
1: That's right. Yeah. yeah I mean, so this yeah. is
0: this is has nothing to do. You know, we we, you, we just can't be copied on a on a commercial kefô scale. It's not that, you know what I mean? This, It's a very specific type of um, environment that would create this. A big industrial-scale farm is probably not going to create the beneficial creatures for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, these farms, the ones that are most protective are small, family-run farms. Mm-hmm. And it just happened to be that those are the kind of farms that uh, predominate in the areas where these scientists, and it's Switzerland, Germany, um, and and parts of Denmark and and parts of France, but they they predominate there, especially in the Alps, because you can't have big farms in the mountains. So it was sort of an accident of the landscape huh. yeah. that they they because you know huge factory farms, people who work in them, they have other problems. Yeah, part partly relating to their exposure to lots of bacteria. Um, they have a sort of over. Uh, stimulation of their immune system, you know, that can lead to, like, COPD if it's chronic and that kind of thing, right? So, as you were alluding to, you need to get the right amount of stimulation. But the truth is that the scientists don't know if it's just sort of general stimulation or if you actually are colonized by certain very protective bugs in that environment. And if it's the latter, it's much easier to do because instead of spraying you with, like, aerosolized manure, they can just get those bugs and make a probiotic.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So it seems so far everything is a trade off. <laughs> you know, there's just no magic pill. But that being said, would you recommend someone going and visiting a farm in their young age or while pregnant?
1: Um, you, no, I'll tell you why. Because there are a few studies um, that actually came after the book was done. That showed that that people had intermittent exposure, not chronic but okay. inter- intermittent that they, it was actually counterproductive, and they, and their kids came out more allergic gosh now so this is I should caveat this by saying mm-hmm. that those studies were not done in the same areas of europe okay um and i'm i'm not sure that they were as rigorous as those studies you also it's also possible that and they mentioned this in the studies that um there were, there were zoonotic helminth infections, which means that a parasite that's native to an animal colonizes a human. And that is a very different proposition than a parasite native to a human colonizing you mm-hmm. because uh, they basically don't know their way around the human body. They don't know how to tweak your immune system quite right. So they end up possibly causing the very things that we're trying to avoid, which is one of them being a very strong allergic reaction. Um, this is all very conjectural. We don't know the, the truth, but you know, if you work on a farm and you're not allergic and you have kids, you're in luck.
0: Okay. But yeah. Then you're in the you're, right, you're in the sweet spot. You're in the sweet
1: spot, right? Yeah. If you're uh, pregnant and you suddenly decide that you want to avoid your kids having allergies, you go to a farm all of a sudden, it's probably not a good idea just, in, you know, in case it becomes, it's counterproductive. Okay. Um, <laughs> just because we don't know yet, Right. unfortunately, right. you know, there's all this uncertainty and it could be, it could do the, have the very, the exact opposite outcome of the one that you're hoping for. Wow. And,
0: and so that's the other problem is the mounting evidence is just now, it's just accumulating now. So it's going to take a lot of number crunching and research and you reading it all for me. <laughs> yeah. and letting me know where where it's all headed completely fascinating
1: yeah well hopefully they can come up with some kind of fix you know not in 100 years from now but
0: yeah
1: <laughs> sooner yeah so what are some
0: of the things that are working like i've um I say with crohns and ibd isn't there uh, some emerging things that have shown good you know quite some promising
1: yeah there's the um the the porcine whipworm, it's a, it's a parasite native to pigs uh, developed at the University of Iowa. Um, and it's now in testing by a company called Coronado Biosciences. And they're testing it on everything. They are psoriasis, multiple sclerosis, Crohn's. I think they're even starting with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune diabetes. Um, and th- and that, that trial is going to be particularly interesting because they're actually trying to prevent it as opposed to just treat it in hmm. that case. Uh, which is you know that is the ultimate goal is to prevent all these diseases. So once they're already established, uh, it's gonna be hard. I mean, that said, the early studies on this this parasite with Crohn's were they had like an eighty percent remission rate, which is phenomenal. Those are small; they're like thirty some people, uh, but there was it was still sort of just out of the ballpark. Hmm. Um, and it, so basically, we're just waiting to see. There's larger trials, and if if it's good, if it works, it's gonna sort of blow the top off things. And because what people are
0: doing currently is going out on their own and trying to get these worms. That's part of the story of the book. Is uh, a little adventure of yours, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole there's a burgeoning hookworm underground. They're using uh, mostly <laughs> the the human hookworm. They also some of people are using whipworm. Uh, and there are, well, I, I preface this by saying I do not at all recommend it mm-hmm. because, uh, well, because there are lots of reasons. First of all, the information is not reliable that's out there, um, in terms of the amazing success stories. Um, there's something that happens when information is just not, you know, on the internet, you can sort of find something that supports anything you want. There's
0: a miracle cure for anything you have. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. right.
1: Yeah. And so there's no vetting of these stories um, and there's no, there's no way to confirm. And that said, I know because I was able to confirm with some doctors that some people did have amazing remission. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there's this, there's this literature that backs it up, the scientific literature. I also know that for some people, it didn't work very well. It actually made things worse. Um, I have no idea what the ratio is. Any drug is not going to work for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the question is whether it works better than placebo or not which just hasn't been determined Okay, well, then,
0: let, can we talk about the, the real risk though or are we talking about death or extreme sickness or, or what with these with the hookworms
1: um, I have not met anyone or heard of anyone who died okay. but then again I wouldn't because they'd be dead um, yeah, yeah, but that story probably would have been I would pal- say would, if,
0: man if, if, if any word or hint of that got out though it would be national news 'Cause it's yeah. just so it's it's so exotic and wild and they would oh they they would love to run with it.
1: Yeah, the problem is here's the problem with the the movement in general is that um if when it doesn't work for people, it's almost like and, and so there's all these discussion boards online where people mm-hmm. talk about their experiences and sort of cha- exchange um uh you know advice basically and there's sure. some really interesting stuff that happens there like r- really informative but there's also a lot of really not interesting stuff and not informative stuff that happens there um and it seems to me that there's this attitude uh where if it doesn't work for someone it's almost like oh um sorry it didn't work for you uh you must have done something wrong
0: yeah you weren't you didn't do it enough or you long
1: enough or well enough yeah you yeah did. Whatever you didn't pray hard enough, whatever it may be, it's all. Mm-hmm. But this is a kind of phenomenon that's that doesn't just happen in, in this, but also in sort of you could see it a lot of in, in New Agey movements. Like you didn't sweat in the sweat lodge long enough, you didn't yeah. pray hard enough, whatever it may be. And then that uh,
0: shaming causes people to underreport.
1: That's exactly negative right.
0: Results, right?
1: Yeah, that's that's precisely what I suspect happens. Mm-hmm. People are very embarrassed. To announce when it doesn't work, I've noticed. Oh,
0: especially if you do something outrageous. Anytime you step out of line in life, if you're successful, you're praised. You're some kind of crazy, you know, amazing hero. But if you fail doing something odd, oh my God, do they beat you?
1: <laughs> and also, I should remind you that you spend twenty, three hundred bucks or more on this. So you've also invested a lot of money. Oh, yeah, in yeah. It. yeah. So and that travel, alone, right? You got to go out travel. of country. Not to mention uh, it, the pain. Um, you know, having done it myself, there's a significant discomfort. Now, I should also say about that discomfort that um, from the scientists who've self-infected, it seems to be partly sort of the host's genotype. So, it depends okay. on your genes um, how much wow. discomfort you get from it. I had pretty significant discomfort, hmm. and and I also interviewed people who didn't have any. They barely even felt it. And you know, They're throwing in like five, 50, and then two few months later, throwing 50 more. And they're like, yeah, just I felt a tiny little bit of a tweak.
0: So the Um, actual, wow, the actual gene type affects that. That is
1: all possibly, yeah. But then you know, a lot of the people who do this have been on very strong immune suppressants previously Mm. because they have diseases that require immune suppressants. Okay. So the symptoms are are a function of your immune immune response to the parasites. (laughs) Um, So if they have suppressed their immune system they're not going to have as bad symptoms, possibly. So you, you mean, there's just all these factors that are uh, hard to account for. Yeah,
0: yeah, the whole thing. I mean, biology is such a curious thing, and then once you go down this road, it gets really bizarre. It's just, so, you know, I just want to repeat how the book is freaking awesome. I, I love this story, and I love the complexity. I love that every trail just kind of they it's it splinters there's no hard truths and solutions you know it may not be the right book for everyone (laughs) people that want to know exactly what do i do you know what pill to take what's the right probiotic pill yeah (laughs) there's no we don't know well i wish we did know but we don't know yet yeah yeah it's an amazing investigative book and Oh, it's just fantastic. How did you um, – was it a personal health crisis that led you to this or is this a combination
1: of factors? Uh, no crisis in particular. You know, I've, okay. I've had lifelong asthma, lifelong food allergies. Uh, I outgrew the one to egg but I still have two, one to sesame, one to peanuts. And, then I, and since I was 11, I've had hairlessness, alopecia areata. It's autoimmune. Um, it's basically cosmetic. Even though it's associated often with other uh, more sort of dangerous conditions, um, but in my case hasn't been so far. Is it a genetic? So, well, it's an autoimmune disease, and my whole argument is that while there are genes that predispose mm-hmm. to these these diseases, these diseases have increased, and our genes have not changed. Okay. So it's something invi- in the environment, and right. that's you know what I talk about in the book is what has yep. changed in the environment in the last century, really. Uh, so, I guess I just wanted a better answer than the one that I had been given, which is basically no answer to yeah. the question of, of why? Why right. am I yeah. afflicted by all these? And then, you know, it takes you about five minutes of digging around in the scientific literature to see that everyone is real, or scientists are very alarmed by the increase in one of these diseases, um, and they're, they they now represent a significant sort of drain on the national health spending. Uh, you know, in the in the you know, it's been a while since I wrote the book, but like as I recall, it's like around sixty billion or something like that per year. Um, a lot of money,
0: yeah, and increasing, and and morbidity, and,
1: and suffering, mm-hmm. and yes, and, yes, and yeah, just yeah, this
0: is a concern of mine. Being in this, you know, what I this paleo community that I'm part of, uh, Weston A. Price ish, and uh, low carb, and all these little experimental thought. Experiments and food experiments that I research and read about is that you know one of the goals is um, you know to to eliminate or decrease your chances of getting an autoimmune disease by mimicking some ancient culture or food way, and it it may not help. (laughs) It may not. That's probably not enough.
1: Yeah, it may. It may not. It's 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 a great
0: it's a great idea. Yeah, but what I'm what I'm fearful of is people blaming the diet. Say, if you contracted autoimmune disease and you were on a paleo diet, they'll they'll blame the the food you ate or something, you know, or or your lifestyle, and it could be something we don't even know about yet.
1: Yeah, I I think that one thing. I mean, I'm I don't know a lot about the paleo movement, but one thing, at least from the little bit that I know that I've seen uh, is that it, it, it ignores, at least in what I've seen, um, first of all, parasites and microbes, which change how you interact with your diet dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't totally ignore parasites, I guess, with the fermentation uh, movement. But the, the biggest thing, though, is that there is this huge burgeoning field of science on how as we alluded to earlier how what happens to your parents ends up reflecting on you by changing your gene expression
0: yeah
1: so um, you know you can go on the most healthy diet ever but it may not help you simply because 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 of this reason because it's really what happened to your mom while she was pregnant that Mm -hmm. has shaped your predisposition to whatever the disease may be and a big one that's emerging in a lot of different disorders is simply your, mom, your mom's immunological status while she was pregnant um, there are some really scary G- studies that no one has really paid you know much attention to at least in the mainstream uh, media as they call it on what happens when moms are a little bit overweight to their developing fetuses yeah. and and it's like you're, the gut the, the kid children are born with hardened arteries with uh, with increased permeability of the of the gut, with yeah. fewer of those cells that control inflammation called regulatory T cells, um, and with sort of uh, I guess thickening of the bronchi, which can predispose to asthma. But all that is set in in the womb, so the kid comes out with stuff stacked against them.
0: Yeah, and, and some have said that, some have said even perhaps. Um,
1: Oh, and de- developmental disorders. yeah
0: other de- developmental disorders yeah. also right just from Absolutely. just from obesity alone in the mother
1: Absolutely. plus her
0: uh, impaired gut gut flora, and this all adds up so yeah, one thing about paleo that I do like is that epigenetics and how how to have a healthy pregnancy are huge are covered hugely there's there's plenty of information about doing the best you can well obviously you can 't pick your mother but
1: but you can, you, can you can help your child. You that's can help your child. And that's, yeah.
0: it's super important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's really fascinating. And it, it's great because you, you cover a lot of that in this book too.
1: Well, it's turning out to be extremely important. I mean, I think one of the reasons why pinning down some of this stuff has been so hard is that it wasn't actually what happened to the kids. It was what happened to their mothers. Yep, yep. So there's been this delay in the emergence of disease. Um, and so it's like well, is it the pollution, you know, but the pollution's been going down, and the allergies have been going up, is it the you know, is it is it the 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 diet, but people are eating better now and still people are becoming more allergic, you know? It's so it was it was really what, you know, to, to sort of exaggerate, but to make my point. It was the fact that your mom, your grandmother, just ate, you know, spam and and like whipped cream pies mm-hmm. in the fifties. That was the real that's where it all began, right?
0: Yeah, the fifties really
1: screwed us up.
0: it can all be traced back to the 50s i'm blaming industrial food
1: i'm just gonna go with that (laughs) well i mean to start (laughs) refined foods yeah yeah it's just like it is the one of the it's one of the most horrible things i think underappreciated but it really is we're not doing ourselves any favors
0: yeah and then how about um a treatment such as a fecal transplant? Are, are we seeing any, have you read any recent research? Is anyone working on this? You mean, well, it's, there's huge interest for, for Crohn's, for, I was thinking especially, and IBD.
1: There's, the the studies are uh, not consistent on Crohn's. There's the guy in Australia who sort of pioneered the whole, the, the procedure, um, Thomas Barodi, and he has like, Five patients, as I recall, who he gave a fecal transplant to, and they're like in remission years later still. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be that there's a subset of infective uh, ulcerative colitis that responds to this, Um, but there's also a huge majority of people with inflammatory bowel disease that don't clearly have an infection. Like it's not a Clostridium difficile infection, Um, they just have an out of whack ecosystem. Um, and but you know again, the evidence that's emerging is that part of how this ecosystem gets formed is you know they, it, it lives off your mucosal secretions, so it's eating your mucus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So part so your your the health of your mucus mucus secretions partly determines who lives in your gut. It's not just who you're exposed to, but you're actually selecting for bugs actively with your mucus. So then it, then you ask, well, what's wrong with my mucus? And one thing that people see. That scientists see in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's is that the mucus barrier is gone. It's like it has disappeared. Wow. So when, why does that happen? It's unclear. Um, but there was an interesting study by Pong Lok, who, uh, who's in the book as the guy who studied the other guy who got the natural uh, whipworm infection in Thailand. So he did a study on on. it turns out that captive monkeys, macaques, they spontaneously develop ulcerative colitis like huge numbers of them such that it's such a problem that, uh, that they all drop dead and there's, no one knows what to do and they're trying to use them for other purposes probably not great purposes in terms right. of the health of the animal but um, huge you know, portions of the, of the colonies are just falling dead from, from ulcerative colitis so he took some whipworms that actually came from a human first and gave them to a bunch of monkeys and of course they went into remission and what happened is that it restored the mucus barrier in, hmm. their, in their guts. And what did that do? That normalized their microbes. So this is, again, becoming more and more complicated. Like at first it was the, the worms are affecting your immune system, but now it's the worms are maybe just affecting the mucus. And then that normalizes yeah. the microbes. And that's really the beneficial effect, you know?
0: Yeah, ecosystems are amazing. Um, uh, just so difficult to to... to qu- you know quantify to identify that the causal agent you know when something goes awry because it's all so interrelated
1: that's right it is
0: <clears throat> i found the mucal the, the mucosal idea interesting cuz i remember steve jobs was on an anti-mucosal diet and he was obsessed with not having mucus
1: <laughs> really
0: yeah and he obviously was not a healthy person, so I find that kind of interesting. Just an observation off the top of my head.
1: Well, he didn't want mucus coming from where, like from his Right. Nose? There
0: was a. There was a. I don't have the information in front of me, but there was a doctor who had come up with a whole regimen about um, this low mucus diet. You know, and I don't know if that's just saliva or how you know how far that went, but it just popped in my head. Might be worth exploring for two minutes. I'll do a Google search, and that's about it. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, pancreatic cancer is it's rare, but it's there. It's increasing, and it's very deadly. Like no one survives it hardly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We do. We are facing all all sorts of problems, and the uh, the autoimmunity is is just out. Of, you know, it's so out of control, and I hear I read about it all the time. Allergies, everyone has allergies. And another thing I find so fascinating is this approach that attacking it later in life, it just may not, it, it just, it just may not be enough. Going and getting these infections or trying these therapies, is, it's probably too little too late.
1: Well, it, they may be better than the, the currently available allopathic therapies. So in that respect, it won't be too little, too late. It'll be a huge blessing. Like in other words, when we see the results from the pig whipworm trials, Mm -hmm. um, if it's if it still holds around seventy to eighty percent, I mean that is amazing. And there's none. Some of those other uh, drugs have these, you know, side effects that are uh, prednisone. You know, you can't take prednisone forever, number one. But the other, the TNF alpha blockers. they have some undesirable side effects, and more. Yes. I think more importantly, they scare the living feces out of out of people because it's like uh, a brain uh, infection or cancers, and even though they're rare, it's like those kinds of, of consequences loom very large in your yeah. in your imagination. So um, this
0: this all seems to tie right back to gut health, repeatedly, because that that seems to be the heart of it all.
1: Yeah, I think that. People are appreciating the gut as as sort of an immune system hub. You know, 70% of your immune system tissue is actually around your gut. and It's like ni- more than 90% of your body's serotonin is produced in your gut. You have uh, your neurons. You know, you think of your brain as being most of your neurons, but actually there's more neurons around your gut than there are on your spinal cord. Right. And, of course, the microbes you carry are a few pounds, but... It's a few pounds. It actually is more than your brain. You know, your your brain is like three pounds or something like that. Mm-hmm. You may carry more microbes in terms of weight yeah. than in your brain, and and then in terms of computing capacity, of course, they the the genes outnumber yours by at least one hundred and fifty to one, and the estimate keeps going up. I think I saw some of like the four hundred to one. Or something
0: oh wow, like that.
1: wow.
0: Um, so we've got a, at least a, a first approach. Then would be do recommend someone if they're having some health issues do some research at least on gut health
1: yeah i mean i think the first approach to anything is to eat better yeah uh it's if you have asthma or 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 crohn's or something it's really too much to expect to set into remission just with changing your diet i mean some people have so who am i to say um but you know i wouldn't want to raise false hopes but i think the important thing is to eat well throughout life, uh, especially yeah. mm-hmm. starting with when you're pregnant, again, because it has to do with you're setting all sorts of hormone levels and, and uh, you know, and you're, you're sort of already pre-training yeah. the metabolic capacity of your... Of you're your
0: setting pregnancy. the ecosystem for their child. This is
1: invaluable. Well, there's that, but even before they ever encounter... Your microbes. Which you're absolutely right. They will encounter your microbes when they're born. Yeah, I mean the ecosystem
0: of even your to the genetic to the DNA level. Yeah, (laughs) that that the entire ecosystem. You know, the universe of you.
1: Yeah, and if you think of your genes as sort of levers that are cranked on and off, you're setting a certain, or better yet, think of it as a panel. You're playing a very specific music on the keyboard. You know, depending on what you eat, Mm -hmm. Uh, and junk food is not a good song. Yeah, yeah yeah wow so the idea is how are we going to build from that approach where you're not doing huge uh you're not dealing with symptoms you're doing preventive medicine and this this new way of understanding allergies not immune diseases fits right into it because what you want to do is realize number one that your body probably expects certain inputs at certain times because since you know forever until the modern era that's simply what happened um so you're born, you probably get a huge richness of, of your mom's vaginal flora and, to be honest, a little bit of poop as well because that's mm-hmm. what happens when you're born. Right. Um, and I don't know if you saw, actually, as an aside, the, the New York Times had a – Michael Pollan wrote a big piece for the New York Times on, on microbes and yeah, so
0: Yeah, it, it got retweeted huge in the paleo community because of the – there's a huge interest in, the, in, in all that. Yep, yep. I saw it several times.
1: So, he, some of the uh, scientists he interviewed, which are some of the scientists I interviewed, but he, he uh, was asking about what, what they've done to change their habits. And one of them uh, was, you know, they had a child by C section, and they actually went so far as to take a swab of the vaginal secretions and put it on their kid to make sure they actually got inoculated with the right microbes. And these are these are people who of course won't tell you to do that but these are people who know they'll do it themselves yeah
0: are, are, they won't tell you because it hasn't been tested I've actually oh. had some pretty intense conversations with some uh, OBGYNs and and some um just standard MDs about this very subject the um C-section births and best approaches to inoculate if you will or or whatever the the newborn with the with some of the mother's you know, microbiome somehow.
1: And what's the response? Well, that's what we were.
0: They were, we were all just. Just a discussion. Just a discussion. Yeah. yeah. And is this feasible? You know, is it even ethical? <laughs> it, yeah, right. it, You can't do it, you know, could you, could you do it yourself? You know, can you do a fecal transplant at home? Um,
1: well, you know. as you know, people are doing that. Probably. I mean, uh, there's a whole sort of online community of people doing that.
0: <laughs> Well, there's an online community of people doing everything, but <laughs> I mean, I'd recommend it.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, but
0: at least keep it in the family, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not <laughs> because, I mean, almost by by definition, if... If good microbes help you, then if your donor has bad microbes, they can hurt you. Then you so, it can hurt you. Yeah. So it, in theory you could also have bad outcomes if it works. You know, if it benefits you, it could also not benefit you.
0: I'm telling you, I'm walking around this house like a maniac. I got bleach spray in one hand and then the other hand, I don't want to you know, I d I, I don't want to wash anything. I never <laughs> know what to do. <laughs> so I try a little bit of everything. Sometimes I'll just rinse things and then sometimes I'll scrub the hell out of them. <laughs>
1: Well, you know what's interesting is the microbial content of a house does not correlate with any kind of visible signs of dirt or usually it correlates with the number of occupants, whether or not you have pets like dogs Mm -hmm. or where your house is. Is it near a barn? Is it in the woods? Is it in an urban setting? And where you guys work, that sort of thing. Huh. So you're not going to – in other words – the dust bunnies mean yeah. nothing in terms of, of the, this whether you whole,
0: have... Yeah, the, the ecosystem your house is in is more important than the ecosystem inside your house.
1: And also, if you work in a barn, say, you're going to track home microbes. Uh-huh. Um, if you... Uh, and dogs, of course, have been found to bring in all sorts of microbes that are thought to be healthy. Bring in dirt microbes and, mm-hmm. and uh, of course... I don't have any
0: pets but my kids sure do bring in some dirt microbes that's for sure
1: well lots of kids is also for the the later born kids are are it's this phenomenon no one could quite explain but you know later born kids are are less allergic than earlier born there's like a linear gradient They're, the first born is the most mm-hmm. allergic mhm um but they and,
0: don't really know exactly why though there's like competing theories isn't there
1: yeah but, uh Yeah, but the theory in terms of what we're talking about is simply that the later born kids come into a dirtier house younger age. Okay, yeah,
0: yeah. At an earlier age. Again, you got to get it early. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to have the mother in the right environment and you got to get her mother in the right environment. (laughs) What about the father? Does he play a huge role in that?
1: He will, I think. There are some um, studies, not on allergic disease, but on on, uh, metabolic. Disorders or you know obesity, and it matters how much like a grandfather ate or our father ate. You know w- w- how rich was their diet hmm. might increase increase your risk of, of diabetes. Wow, it's These never just, ending. Yeah, I think what, but you know there are differences. So he's passing on a certain genome that has been um, methylated, so that some genes are on and some genes are off. But when, in your mother's uh, we. When you're developing in in your mother's womb, it's it's not only epigenetic changes that are occurring. It's also just you're on a certain tract of of uh, of development according to the cues that are coming in. You know, so it's like your actual physical blood and flesh will change according to the messages coming in. Wow, um, that being one of the you know one of the theories of. What happens in developmental disorders is that the inflammation during certain periods interferes with the sort of migration of the neurons and actually changes the architecture of the brain. Mm -hmm. So that's not epigenetics. That's actually, uh, you know, your brain is structurally different. Wow. And that's also what they see with asthma is that these kids come out and they, I mean, for me probably included – your 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 lungs are actually different at birth. It's not just yeah. that your your white blood cells are methylated in one way or another, but your lungs are actually physically different.
0: That's amazing. I don't know if it's encouraging or discouraging, but um, yeah. This the the pregnancy issue is fascinating. And then this could also have you looked into enterotypes at all. Are you are you familiar with this? With the, gut, with the gut, so the microbiome? That, yeah, well, that that they say there may be like four or five distinct enterotypes, like blood yeah.
1: types. Yeah, yeah.
0: And is this gaining attention or is it, has it flatlined? Is it going away? I haven't heard of, uh, that much about it recently.
1: I think um, that the study that did that was sort of uh, quashed by a subsequent study that looked at more people and okay. didn't find enterotypes— uh, but found a gradient, and I think maybe the tarot uh was just an accident of having a small sample size. But it's still an open question, honestly.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, I was really kind of championing it and really hoping. I really want something huge to be discovered while I'm um, on the case. Like while my eyes are, you know, yeah, while I'm talking to people and things. I really want something big to pop up and say, oh my god, I can't believe we never knew, you know. That just like blood types, we have gut types. Yay! Like, I just wanted something to be excited about. but
1: Well, there is a general pattern, but it relates to um, where you live. And there's, there's one study I mentioned in the book where they compared the microbiome, people living in, in the Amazon, people living in rural Africa, and North Americans – and uh first of all there was much greater diversity obviously in the in not in the american north american example but in the other two um but they also noticed that at a functional level which is what the genes in your microbiome do what they're uh what they're organized to degrade the microbiome from La- from amazonia and from africa resemble each other and it was the north american microbiome that was the sort of outlier hmm. um and of course you know th- their circumstances more resemble how we evolve so yeah yeah there are maybe not enterotypes at the personal level but there are enterotypes at the circumstantial level wow right and at the, you could say at the um uh well it's not really national level I was but it's, say it's almost of,
0: continental level
1: <laughs> yeah it's, i think it's better to think nearly. of it as it's the epidemiological transition level. So okay. people who, before they trans- transitioned into modernity yeah. have – so no antibiotics, no refined foods or few refined foods and they live in what scientists call a living environment where it's, they're just surrounded by mud and, 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 uh, and animals and, and what have you. And, of course, probably and loads of parasites, even though they, they said there were no parasites in that study. But I don't know if they really looked at that. Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. Hard to look at everything and to consider everything. And the funny thing about this interview is that right now, I'm, and when we started, I was extremely distracted. Because, um, I, I, you know, I committed to doing this interview, but they sent my son home from school early. Oh, no. They, they think he's got pink eye. Ah. I've got three kids. Yeah. It's bath time. So I got to do I separate them? Do I let them take a bath at once? Do we do the normal, you know, and I'm, so I was a little distracted, but talking to you, I forgot all about it. So
1: but do you, are your kids okay? Do they need you do they need their no, father? No, well, if
0: I, if they were in distress, I'd run the hell in there. I'm just being a little, uh, dramatic, you know, I set them up nicely. They're, they're fine. So I, I do, I got to get going and do the nighttime routine here, but, um, I just thought it was kind of curious that we might be facing a bacterial meltdown here.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's potentially very serious.
0: Um, Yeah, it is. It's not really to be taken lightly and highly contagious and yeah, but it may just be allergies or something. We'll see in a day or two, I guess.
1: uh, You mean with your son you're talking about? Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all.
0: Not i know for the world that it's an issue as well the bigger picture but yeah i don't think we'll solve or know what's wrong with the world by tomorrow but with my son maybe
1: (laughs) yeah the good thing is there are eye drops
0: (laughs) yeah we'll we'll get we'll we'll take care of it all in the morning and you know i really want to thank you for your time moises this was a lot of fun
1: no problem. My um, pleasure.
0: I had a little trouble getting started with this one, like I said, because I was a little distracted. But the subject is um, one of the more exciting and fascinating ones of, of anything I've covered. So, man, I love this. Are you going to be sticking with this subject in a in a new, in a coming venture, or where are you headed?
1: I I I'm just, you know, I'm a, I am happen to have a huge body of knowledge now because I wrote the book, but I'm really just a science writer, so I'm going to write about other stuff, uh, neuroscience. Uh, I'm going to keep my eye on, on things as they develop, so I'll keep writing about it. I have a piece in uh, Mother Jones from a few, like a month ago. Okay. It's on ju- junk food and microbes. Okay.
0: I'll just have ask you to send me some links of some things you've recently written so I can put sure. in the show notes. And are you currently blogging or tweeting or anything like that? Where people can you know, follow along.
1: I, I have a site. People can visit it, but I haven't been keeping up with that. Uh, okay. My, uh, it's only be- it's out of sheer um, laziness, I guess. Oh, okay. Well,
0: make a change.
1: Yeah. I'm telling you, I know
0: a lot of people, a lot of people that are really, really interested in, in this subject and others and epigenetics and all these emerging sciences. It's a huge field. You could probably have a very popular, successful blog, I shouldn't say probably. I know you would, because your writing is yeah. fantastic. The book's fantastic, and yeah, if you put little short snippets in the as a blog.
1: That's true. Maybe I, I'll I, tell I you will start it, that. Yeah, yeah,
0: it would be fantastic. I'd love it. That's for sure.
1: Well, maybe I will. Maybe I just needed to push.
0: Okay. Well, I'll remind you again soon. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And I love the book, and uh, I'm just going to promote the heck out of it.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. glad you liked it. Thanks for having me. All
0: right. Talk to you again someday, I hope. All right? Be in touch. Good night now.
1: Bye.